Chapter 15 of A Group of Famous Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kendra Murray, Petaluma, California, www.utterlykendra.com. A Group of Famous Women by Edith Horton. Chapter 15. Mary A. Livermore, 1821-1905. I am not accustomed to the language of eulogy. I have never studied the art of paying compliments to women. But I must say that if all that has been said by orators and poets since the creation of the world in praise of women was applied to the women of America, it would not do them justice for their conduct during this war. I will close by saying, God bless the women of America. Abraham Lincoln The life of Mary A. Livermore shows how a poor, unknown girl became famous the world over as an orator and reformer. Mary Rice was born in Boston, Massachusetts, December 19, 1821. Her parents were stern Calvinists, her grandfathers for six generations having been Welsh preachers. Hence, Mary was brought up after the strictest sect of Pharisee. She was a restless, active child, fond of play, yet interested in work. At an early age, she was sent to a public school in Boston, where she made rapid progress in her studies, being quick to learn and persistent and enthusiastic over her tasks. Her classmates were fond of her, and by reason of an unusually strong character, she became a leader among them. The poor or unfortunate always appealed to her. If ever a girl appeared in the school wearing shabby clothes or eating a scanty luncheon, Mary would manage to prevent her from feeling uncomfortable. It is not surprising that she was a favorite. In out-of-door sports, she excelled most of the girls, being famous for running, jumping, and sliding. One day, after she had spent a happy hour at her favorite sport of sliding on the ice, she ran into the house, exclaiming, Splendid! Splendid sliding! Her father replied, Yes, Mary, it is good fun, but hard on the shoes. This led the child to believe that her father's burden was increased by her amusement, so she decided that she would never slide again. When ten years of age, she grew so deeply anxious for the spiritual welfare of her five little brothers and sisters that she could not sleep. She would crawl out of bed at night and beg her father and mother to arise and pray for their conversion, once saying, It is no matter about me. If they can be saved, I can bear anything. Even in her play, she would devise means of instructing as well as entertaining the children. There being no money to buy toys for them, Mary introduced the game of playing school. It is said that she imitated her own teachers to perfection. 
Sometimes in the old woodshed, she arranged the logs to represent the pews of a church, and, desiring a larger audience than that of the children, she stood up sticks of wood to represent people. Then, when the assemblage was sufficiently large to warrant a service, she would conduct one herself, praying and preaching with the utmost seriousness. Her mother, surprised at her ability in this line, once said to her, Mary, I wish you had been a boy. You could have been trained for the ministry. In those days, no one even thought of educating a girl to speak from the pulpit, though today it is not uncommon. Nor could Mrs. Rice dream that her daughter would one day become a powerful public speaker in an important cause and deliver speeches in lecture halls and churches. When Mary was twelve, she resolved to assist her father in supporting the large family, for she had observed with sorrow how hard he worked. Dressmaking seemed to offer good opportunities, so she entered a shop as an apprentice. In three months, she had learned her trade and was then hired at 37 cents a day to work three months more. But being desirous of earning more money, she engaged to make a dozen flannel shirts at home for a clothier. After sewing all day in the shop and sitting up at home until early morning hours, she could not finish the shirts in the time agreed upon. One evening the man called for them, greatly to Mrs. Rice's surprise, for she had known nothing about Mary's plan. Mary explained the delay, promising to have the shirts finished the next day. When the clothier had left, Mrs. Rice burst into tears. "'We are not so poor as that, my dear child. What will become of you if you take all the cares of the world upon you?' she said. Mary completed the shirts, took them to the clothier, and received the sum of seventy-five cents. This ended her experience as a seamstress, for her mother would not permit the child to continue such work. At fourteen, Mary was graduated from the public school, receiving a gold medal for good scholarship. She then entered the Charlestown Female Seminary, where she became one of the best scholars in the institution. Her ability was so pronounced that when one of the teachers died, she was at once asked to take the vacant position. She conducted her class with much tact and wisdom, earning enough to pay for the four-year course, which she completed in two, by studying and reciting out of school hours. At the age of eighteen, she took a position as governess in the family of a wealthy Virginia planter. Her object was not altogether teaching, she wished to investigate for herself the slavery question, which was then much discussed by abolitionists. She had heard the lectures of Lucretia Mott and John G. Whittier, and determined to find out if the facts were as bad as stated. Her two years' experience in Virginia made her an uncompromising abolitionist. The faculty of the Duxbury High School was in need of a principal. It was customary to place men in such positions, but Mary Rice's fame had made its way to Duxbury. They had heard of her as an unusual young woman and one of the most learned of the day. So Mary was placed over the high school, and there she remained until she was twenty-three years old, when she resigned to become the wife of the Reverend D. P. Livermore, a young minister, two years her senior, whose church was near her school. 
Mary immediately began to cooperate with Dr. Livermore in his work. For thirteen years she assisted him in the affairs of his parish, during which time three children were born to them. She started literary and benevolent societies among the church members, and was active in the cause of temperance, organizing a club of fifteen hundred boys and girls which she called the Cold Water Army. In 1857, the Livermores removed to Chicago. Mrs. Livermore, while there, aided in editing The New Covenant, a religious paper, at the same time writing stories and sketches for many Eastern publications. In 1860, when Abraham Lincoln was nominated for the presidency, Mrs. Livermore was the only woman present probably the first woman representative of the press who ever reported a political convention. The breaking out of the Civil War changed her life of domestic quietness to public activity. Being in Boston at the time that the president called for volunteer troops, she witnessed their departure for the seat of war. The sad scenes at the station, where mothers parted from sons and wives from their husbands, affected her strongly. As the train carrying the soldiers started off, some of the women fainted. Mrs. Livermore helped to revive them, telling them not to grieve, but rather to be thankful that they had sons to fight for their country. For her part, she told them, she grieved to have no son to send. Then a question arose in her mind. What could women do to help? The general feeling seemed to be that women could do nothing, since they were not allowed to enlist and fight as soldiers. They were told they were not wanted in the hospitals, but notwithstanding this, a large number of women banded together and formed the United States Sanitary Commission, whose object was to provide bedding, clothing, food, and comforts for the soldiers in camp, and supplies for the wounded in the hospitals. Branch associations were formed in ten large cities. Mrs. Livermore and Mrs. Jane C. Hogue were put in charge of the Northwestern Branch. Together with others, Mrs. Livermore went to Washington to talk with President Lincoln. They asked him the question, May women go to the front? Lincoln replied, The law does not grant to any civilian, either man or woman, the privilege of going to the front. The emphasis he placed upon the words law and grant convinced these women that he would not disapprove of their plans. So Mrs. Livermore entered hand, heart, and soul into the work of relief. The North was entirely unprepared for war. The hospitals were few and poorly equipped. Nurses were scarce and not well trained. There were no diet kitchens, nor was there any way of supplying proper medicines to the sick or of caring for the wounded. To all of these matters, Mrs. Livermore gave her attention. The confusion came to an end, and soon the machinery of the new department was running smoothly. She formed soldiers' aid societies, enlisted nurses for the hospitals, and took them to their posts. She went to the front with supplies and saw that they were properly distributed. She nursed and cheered the wounded soldiers, and often brought back invalids with her to their homes. With all this work, 
she kept cheerful and well, and found time to write letters of comfort and cheer to the families of the sick. In one year, she wrote 1,700 letters, many being from dying soldiers, and containing their last farewell to loved ones at home. The Sanitary Commission was permitted in time of battle to keep its wagons in the rear of the army. Hot soup and hot coffee were kept in readiness, cool water and medicines were given when necessary, while the mere fact that brave women were ready to assist the wounded put confidence into the hearts of the men. It is impossible to describe the great work done by this untiring woman. Mrs. Livermore tells about it in her book called My Story of the War, which is said to be the best account of the hospital and sanitary work of the Civil War that has ever been written. This work took a great deal of money. Donations must be constantly solicited and sanitary fairs arranged. From all parts of the country, people were writing and begging Mrs. Livermore to come to them and tell them about her plans. She frequently did describe them in an informal way to small audiences. Her first public speech was made in Dubuque, Iowa, where she had consented to address some ladies. Leaving Chicago by the night train, she reached the Mississippi River at a point where there was no bridge, travelers being obliged to cross by ferry. It was very cold, and the ice in the river had stopped the ferryboats. Mrs. Livermore, after waiting nearly all day, began to think she would not be able to keep her engagement. At last, she saw two men starting out in a small boat, whom she asked to row her across. One man said, No, we can't think of it. You'll be drowned. Mrs. Livermore replied, I can't see that I shall be drowned any more than you. Her offer to pay them well settled the matter. This determination to accomplish whatever she undertook to do was the chief reason for Mrs. Livermore's success in all her undertakings. The fact is, she liked to do hard things. Upon her arrival at Dubuque, she found that the ladies had made great preparations to receive her. They had invited the governor of the state and many noted men, and the largest church in town was crowded with eager people. This rather alarmed her. At first, she refused to speak, saying that she had come to talk to a few ladies only, that she had never made a speech in her life. But when they said that by speaking, she might be the means of inducing the great state of Iowa to enter upon the work of sanitary relief, her shyness departed, and she held her audience spellbound for an hour and a quarter. A new power had suddenly developed in her. At the close of her address, the governor of the state arose and said, Mrs. Livermore has told us of the soldiers' needs and of our duties. It is now our turn to speak, and we must speak in dollars and gifts. The enthusiasm was great. $8,000 was soon pledged, and other donations were made. It was decided to hold a sanitary fair in Dubuque, and Mrs. Livermore was engaged to speak in different towns throughout the state to interest the people in it. When the fair was held, $60,000 was cleared. After that, Mary Livermore was never again afraid to speak before a large audience. 
By her lectures, she raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for the hospital work. At the close of the war, people were so anxious to hear Mrs. Livermore that she became a regular public lecturer, traveling from place to place and lecturing always before crowded houses. Her eloquence has been equaled by few modern speakers, and undoubtedly she was the foremost of women orators. Before the war, Mrs. Livermore had been opposed to women's suffrage, but life in the army caused her to change her views on that question. She saw that, under existing political and social conditions, women could never hope to complete reforms until they possessed the right to vote. She was also devoted to the cause of temperance, serving for ten years as president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union of Massachusetts. All this while she was writing articles for magazines, and at the age of 75, Mrs. Livermore produced a book of 700 pages entitled The Story of My Life. A bust of Mrs. Livermore, made by the sculptor Annie Whitney, was presented to the Shirtliff School in Boston by the Alumni Association of that institution. It stands opposite that of Lucy Stone, which was the first bust of a woman ever accepted by the city of Boston for its schools. Mrs. Livermore continued in public work while living at her beautiful home in Melrose, Massachusetts, until May 23, 1905, when she passed away at the age of 84. End of Chapter 15 Recording by Kendra Murray, Petaluma, California www.utterlykendra.com